Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Does back to school mean back to normal? The lead up to this school year certainly feels more like a traditional start when compared to COVID lockdowns and remote school two and a half years ago. Today, where we live, we talked to Connecticut's chief education official who oversees a statewide public school system of more than 500,000 students. State Education Commissioner Charlene Russell Tucker has been a lifelong educator. And in August, it was her one year since she was appointed as commissioner by Governor Ned Lamont. Prior to that, she was the interim leader for six months and then deputy commissioner overseeing educational support and wellness priorities. Now, if you're a parent, an educator, or a student, we want to hear your question for the commissioner. Our number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. With us in studio is Commissioner Charlene Russell-Tucker. So nice to, to see you today. Lucy, it's great to be here with you uh, at the start of the school year. A very busy time. You could hear the excitement in my voice because our listeners may not know this. You are our first in-studio guest since the pandemic began. All this time we've been talking with guests on Zoom. So it really is wonderful to have you in this room with me. And it's a great studio. So great to be here with you. (laughs) Well, thank you. Now, I mentioned that the start of this school year already feels like we're maybe we're back to normal. But when we compare this to last year's return to school, it was really punctuated by a kickoff event. You probably remember in Cheshire, there were anti-mask protesters at this event. And you, the governor and other state officials ended up having to leave early. Hearst, Connecticut reporting at least one protester singled out the governor who was escorted out of the building by his state police security detail. So would you say that the start is already calmer compared to last year? It is absolutely calmer uh, compared to last year. And uh, we we ourselves had our kickoff last week with superintendents uh, back to school, uh, gathering in person to be energized and inspired for the start of the school year. And when you say that they're energized and inspired, what are you hearing from school leaders? Because it, it has been stressful the last two and a half years. It has been stressful. Uh, they've had to learn uh, so many new things. You know, it was, I said, they minded in epidemiology this past few years. As educators, they were not prepared. None of us mm-hmm. were prepared for what was handed to us. And so we've learned a lot. We've partnered a lot. And here we are. It's like, you know, we've learned some things and what to do to keep schools as safe as possible. Uh, And so let's get on with the learning. Uh, That is the key focus. That's what our schools do, is to make sure our students are educated. Mm. You mentioned, you know, the priority was to keep their schools as safe as possible. So let's start with the the pandemic. We know that we're living in a time where what was once uh, COVID guidelines that people followed pretty strictly, it has been relaxed now. And so when we talk about, um, you know, the environment that students and educators are returning to, um, you know, how do you feel about this moment in time? You know, I'm very confident about where we are. Again, based on the fact that we've learned so much 
And we've learned to partner in new ways uh, across uh, state agencies, across sectors, our district superintendents working with local public health. Uh, they've learned a lot. We've all learned a lot. And so here we are. Our kids are back in. Uh, you know, they were last year, but there was also interruptions. Uh, we've all together learned around contact tracing and close contacts and what need to happen. There was still a lot of interruptions. And we're certainly hopeful for something that's more stable, uh, less interruptions moving forward. Mm. So um, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but when we think about this second major public health crisis in our country, now, monkeypox. How are educators talking about this uh, in schools? So we, we're following very closely the Department of Public Health. Uh, they are the health experts in our state, and we're working with them. And so as they put guidance out for the entire population, schools are a part of that, and we're sharing that information with them. Again, they have learned so much. Our school nurses have stepped up, and so they are there to help to ma make sure that they're assisting with any new guidance and any new protocols that need to be in place. Was this something that uh, school leaders have brought up with you? Is there concern uh, that you know there could be monkeypox cases in public schools? I have not heard that uh, directly from them. I, again, they're just so focused on, we've learned a lot with COVID. Uh, the mitigation strategies are still in place. We're still holding on to that. And so there's been not a lot of inf uh, questions uh, regarding that. Mm -hmm. You know, I should couch uh, our, our information from NPR is that, you know, the route of transmission for monkeypox still extremely rare in public settings, but it is something that people are keeping an eye on, not only in school settings, but also on college campuses as kids are back and students are back to school. You can join us uh, as I talk to the State Education Commissioner, Charlene Russell Tucker, our number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So you feel confident that um, schools should not be tracking cases of COVID anymore or transmission, um, considering that COVID is still with us. And so our, we still have some protocols in place, one of them being reporting cases. And so they will still be doing that, reporting that information to the Department of Public Health. It helps us to know what's happening and whether we need to do any further mitigation strategies, but just helping them out. So they will be doing that. Uh, it's just not leading with that at this point in time, uh, again, because of all that they've learned and all the guidance that we have and the work we've done together uh, over the past two, two and a half years. Mm. It's unfortunate that when we think about public health, it has become politicized. And so um, when you mentioned not leading with this, uh, is that also you're thinking about how the public perception of COVID and, of course, some of the pushback against some of these guidelines, how that impacted you, your staff and educators on the local level? So, you know, it, it's been such a rough time and we were all learning and working together. And so I understand the family's concern. I understand our educators' concerns. I understand all the concerns that were there. And that's why I call it our best in class collaboration, really working with public health and all our partners to say this is how we move forward. Uh, and and we've, we've weathered a lot of storms together. And I believe in Connecticut, there's nothing that we can accomplish working together. Mm. Uh, we know that certain vaccines are required for public school students. Uh, we know that flu vaccines are something that are required. Do you think that we've reached a point where COVID vaccines should be required for public school students? Uh, so that's a, that's a tough question. And I'll leave that up to the medical professionals. Uh, but, you know, but in the interim, you know, parents, talk with their medical providers, talk with the pediatricians, and really take that good guidance and make the best decisions for, their, for students.
Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as I talk with the State Education Commissioner. Uh, Schools are not quite open yet, but that means parents, uh, students, and even educators can call in with their question for Commissioner Russell Tucker. Uh, When we think about um, some of the challenges that public schools have faced, uh, of course, uh, COVID, but the consequences of people who have left the profession. I understand teacher shortages are still pretty dire in our state. I'm quoting here Kate Diaz, who's president of the Connecticut Education Association, saying uh, to the CT News Junkie, 1,200 to 1,600 positions have opened up statewide. How bad is it for local districts, and and what are they to do? And it varies across districts, uh, as you can well imagine. And we're in the throes of getting some information directly from our districts to see exactly where we are. But we know uh, the issue of of shortages or teacher shortages or educator shortage is not a new one. Uh, But the pandemic really threw everything in a loop uh, for everyone. And so we've been working at the agency uh, just to support, you know, uh, Kate, we, we have conversations all the time about what we need to do about that. We just did uh, an 11 state reciprocity um, policy that allow educators from out of state who are like certified in their states and similar certifications here in Connecticut to have a streamlined process to get Connecticut certification. And since we opened that up in April, we've issued over 400 certifications to to educators out of the state of Connecticut we want them in Connecticut. And so we're working on, we've, we've done some flexibilities around certification so that superintendents can make some decisions around moving staff, staff around. But so there's long-term and short-term strategies. Long-term, long-term, we need to make sure that we're enticing uh, as many into the profession. This is a great profession to make sure that we're doing that, going our own, and we have initiatives in school districts and across the state. Uh, but another thing that we've done, Lucy, is to work with our ed preparation institutions. And so we have uh, our students there who are into the profession who can now spend some time in classroom, getting their experiential learning, and getting paid, by the way, to be there. So they can be supports to educators and help us during this time where we are you know, struggling with, with having educators in the classroom. It's important to entice, but how do you retain? Uh, and so a great question, right? So it's getting them in, but it's also retention, making sure that they've got excellent working conditions, uh, making sure that we support them as much as possible. The pandemic was not about impacting just their students and families, but our educators as well. And so how do we make sure that their needs are also addressed? You know, something we just did, like those who are following us uh, online, pre-K-12 appreciation, we wanted to say, we appreciate you for all you do. We worked with some businesses to offer some discounts and some fun things for them. And so it's about saying you matter, uh, a critical role, a critical job to be in front of our students. You're shaping the lives uh, of our students. And so the next generation, it's a great calling and a great profession. We want to make sure that they're there and they feel supported and respected in that role. Uh, I know that public schools are across our state, but I wanted to um, focus on uh, the city of Hartford, also New Haven public schools. Um, They're short um, almost 100 positions. And so in that instance, what are school districts able to do? I know there have been reliance on substitutes, but there have been shortages there as well. Right. Uh, and so interesting you talk about New Haven because my team was on the phone with them yesterday trying to talk through all the options that we have available and working to get these next generation students uh, into uh, their programs as well, into the schools. And so we truly are working as hard as we can with them uh, to look at 
all the flexibilities that's available and helping them to problem solve. Uh, I know Hartford, for example, they've looked at teachers coming in from the Dominican Republic uh, and other places. And so folks have gotten really creative uh, about the attraction, but you're right, and retention uh, for educators is such a key role and very important for us as we're in schools right now that we don't have that disruption or not have uh, certified educators in front of them. You shared with us this program uh, to get out-of-state uh, people to come into Connecticut or to at least be certified to teach here. But what about people within our state? Are you just not hearing from enough people that are interested in this profession? What are the challenges? There are challenges, uh, and we work through those. And so we think about opportunities as well. For just go right in our classrooms. We have paraeducators uh, that are in our classrooms, right, that may be interested in the further education that they need. And so how do we support them? We just deployed $2 million for COVID relief funds uh, to support our educational preparation institutions to make sure our students, some of their certification or licensure exams can be paid for uh, to make it a little bit easier for them to go through school. We also just uh, did, the governor uh, deployed uh, some funding to make sure that uh, educators uh, can get some of their loans, uh, you know, refinance at a lower rate. So we're really looking at those uh, initiatives as well. For those you are in-state, you're teaching in our schools, uh, you're interested in our schools, how can we attract you into the profession? Mm-hmm. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk with the State Education Commissioner, uh, Charlene Russell-Tucker. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I'm really glad that you brought up the paraeducators or paraprofessionals, because for people who may not have children in public schools, they may not understand the role that they play and um, why it's so important to have them in the classroom. Uh, we were talking with our education reporter here, Catherine Shen, who says that many paras have set a more standardized process process can help inspire them to apply, and there were plans to create a more standardized certification process for paras. Um, tell us where that stands. And, and so there were uh, some legislative proposals uh, that didn't pass this past session. However, again, very committed at the agency to support our paraeducators. Uh, they're critical in the classroom, providing the one-to-one supports uh, to our students who need them so much. And so we continue to keep the dialogue open. I now have, I think this week, meeting with paraeducators to talk about how we can further support them in their role. Is it additional training? Is, how do we support districts to support them uh, and recognize their value and worth? And, and as I said before, for those who are interested in moving up you know, in, into the teaching role, how do we support them in order to do that? And so those lines of communication and commitment are totally there to support mm-hmm. them. We focused on teacher shortages, but in terms of uh, what a district needs and to find uh, enough paraprofessionals, does the state track that? So we just, uh, great question again, uh, Lucy, we just uh, opened up a new employment special education uh, portal uh, that we can have basically available folks across the world be able to apply uh, for, for paraprofessionals or other special education p- positions in Connecticut. So candidates can go into that website uh, to see what's available. Our educators, our superintendents, districts can post jobs there. So we open things up so that we really can recruit uh, from across the country and across the world uh, into that space. But you're right. We've got to make sure that those who are here in our state who are interested also have a pathway into those positions uh, that are available. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we heard from a listener who tweeted, uh, wants to know why haven't the Narcan units pledged for free by the manufacturer been distributed yet to every Connecticut school's med kit? And so I'm wondering if you can talk about um, Narcan available in public schools. You know, there was that unfortunate um, incident um, in the Hartford Public Schools that involved a young person. And, you know, the role of the state education department to make sure that local districts are equipped with the right kind of medicine to save children when needed. And, uh, you know, this so it's such an unfortunate situation. Uh, and we've provided and are providing training and support for districts, working with other agencies as well uh, in, in the space in order to make sure that uh, we have the resources that's available, uh, our districts have the resources that they need, and the, the proper training and protocols for administration is something that we're working on uh, as well. Really important. But at the end of the day, it's, is it up to the local school districts to make that decision? Uh, what's available to school nurses? And so, yes, you know, they are making those decisions with a lot of support uh, from us. And again, there was some past legislation that we're working on for implementation to make sure that there is availability. Uh, and as I said, very important with that is also the training necessary uh, for utilization. You're hearing Charlene Russell Tucker here where we live, Commissioner at the State Department of Education. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. More after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Connecticut Public Schools are getting ready to open, and we're talking about the upcoming school year with my guest, Charlene Russell-Tucker, who is the State Department of Education Commissioner. So parents, educators, and students, what questions do you have for her? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we started talking about safety related to this public health crisis, uh, um, Charlene. And then when we think about school safety in the wake of the mass shooting in Uvalde, uh, we know that several local districts have added armed guards or are talking about it. And so what are the conversations uh, that you're having within the department about making sure that, again, schools are safe for for everyone um, during the day? 
So safety is critically important. Connecticut knows firsthand of the impact when a tragedy such as the shooting uh, in Yavaldi happens in schools. And so that's why we're really continuing to work to talk about school safety. Uh, for those who don't know that our schools are required to have school safety and security plans that they file with the Department of Public Health, Public uh, Protection, uh, you know, on an annual basis. And so it's really important they, they do this, they make their plans so that they can be prepared uh, in advance. And so certainly we're reminding our districts that those are necessary to have. But really important, Lucy, is that these conversations are happening at the local level. And this is a community conversation about what's necessary uh, to make sure that our schools are as safe as, as they can be. But when we think about how you've been a lifelong educator and what it's like to be in a classroom, um, what it means to have somebody walking around a, a school campus, a, a, um, an area that is armed, and what that means for children who've been traumatized and even for uh, adults who are responsible for keeping children safe. You know, how do you have those conversations? Yeah, I, you know. You know, it's really a matter of making sure that folks are open and having these conversations together uh, as a community. What are the risks? Uh, what are the benefits? And those decisions are made in collaboration with partners, with, with the local first responders, everyone at the table uh, to really talk about what it is. It's, it's charged. It's a charged issue, as you can well imagine. And our superintendents, they're in the throes of trying to make a decision, like where is the line drawn? Uh, for safety, uh, you know, uh, across the board. And so they're not easy conversations, but they're necessary conversations to have. Mm -hmm. And also internally thinking about, uh, though, you know, students and making sure they're, they're emotionally and social, socially emotionally well and mental health supports are available should also be a part of those conversations. Mm -hmm. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. I'm glad you brought up the, the fact that local school districts are required to um, submit a safety plan to the state uh, because this was, again, a requirement after Sandy Hook. And my understanding through reporting, I believe, that the Connecticut Mirror uh, has done, that not all school districts are doing this. They're not doing it in a timely manner. And so as Education Commissioner, how do you respond? Uh, we're saying and really reminding them every day that you don't want something to happen and you're not prepared. Uh, and so prevention is key in this particular case. And so uh, we take out, uh, we do all the reminders. If there are plans that are not submitted, we reach out. Uh, directly, you know, to talk to our, our school leaders to make sure that that is happening, uh, because that is really important. So I wanted to take a call from New Haven. Uh, Lou is joining us, and you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Lou, what's your question for the commissioner? Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. And uh, commissioner, thank you. Uh, appreciate that you've been talking a lot about teacher retention, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about teacher burnout uh, over the last two years. One of the things that passed in the last legislative session was a, a guaranteed 30 minutes of uninterrupted lunch period for every teacher. And unfortunately, this is something that the, the public school superintendents have been pushing back against. Uh, and so, you know, there, anyone else in the state who works a 35-hour work week is guaranteed a half hour of lunch every day. And so... I, I want to hear from you exactly, you know, where the department stands on this issue and what you all are going to do to, to push back against uh, any potential rollbacks to that provision. Thank you, Lou. So, Lou, thank you uh, very much uh, for all your work and for the question that you're, you're asking here. 
the uninterrupted lunch, as you said, it is now settled law. Uh, so that is required uh, in the state. And what we do is to work with our, our districts to ensure that laws are, are implemented uh, as required. And so we will certainly be there to uh, make sure that there are reminders to our districts uh, in working on this and any additional supports or guidance that's necessary from the department to do it. You know, at the end of each session, we send out a, a composite, we send out a, a memo to our, our schools uh, really summarizing all the legislation that's passed for the year, and there was a lot uh, that was included, as you mentioned, and, and districts, uh, I am sure, will be working towards that. And if, they're, if it's not happening, we will certainly send out the reminders, as we normally do, and support them if there are challenges uh, in making that happen. Again, our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Mike is calling in from Newington. Uh, Mike, you're on the show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my situation is that I'm a building sub, which is on par with being a para in uh, a school in Newington. And with my position as a building sub, I make so little that I actually qualify for SNAP. And I feel like this is not fair, considering that this position requires a bachelor's degree. Uh, we also don't get sick days. Uh, we did during the pandemic, but at least in Newington, I believe they're taking them away again since, quote, unquote, the pandemic is over. Uh, so basically, this is a problem of, you know, paying bills for me. So uh, that's basically my question slash comment. I'll take the answer uh, off air. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, for calling in. Uh, so again, School districts need to, need to rely on substitutes, uh, but Mike's saying that he makes so little. And so I'm wondering what you can say about this issue related uh, to workers' rights and the benefits they receive. Sure. And so districts, as you know, the, the state does not get involved in setting pay rates uh, for our districts. That usually that's done at the, the district level. And, you know, I'm sh with shortages, I am sure that they're looking at what they need to do to attract and retain substitutes as well. I know rates uh, have been going up uh, in some of our districts who are looking to, to make sure that they're competitive. So in a competitive marketplace, really, uh, that drives uh, compensation. And that you, I think you will see that happen across the state uh, for substitute rates and, frankly, even teacher pay, you know, at this point. When you say set at the local level, do you mean that the, it's the local school boards that are setting these pay rates for yes. staff? Yes, that's correct. Good to know. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. A lot to talk about, but I did want to mention that um, the State Department of Ed has been creating a new set of social studies standards expected to roll out in the coming months. We've talked about this uh, several times on our show, including speaking to the state's social studies advisor, Steve Armstrong, who noted that given the larger political climate around what is or isn't taught in public schools, some might say this is a bad time to overhaul standards, but he thinks this isn't the time to equip teachers with specific and clear guidance. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. And, you know, the, the way we've taken the approach with standards uh, is that we don't do it in isolation. We don't do it in a vacuum. And so, you know, I know we'll be talking to our chief academic officer, is really talking with teachers have a voice, students have a voice, our families have a voice, our community leaders have a voice, and we open the door very wide to make sure that we're having these conversations when we develop those standards, when we develop curriculum, uh, to make sure it's uh, responsive and inclusive 
uh, of those who will be implementing and teaching and that it will really give us the benefits uh, for our students being educated. Uh, the person that you referenced is Irene Parisi, who's the chief academic officer for the State Department of Ed, who's in charge of all the curriculum, curricula standards. Irene, uh, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, we wanted to focus on the social studies standards and what Steve Armstrong has told us about now being such an important time to make sure that teachers are equipped with clear guidance. And so how would you respond uh, to this moment that we're in, Irene? I, I do think this is an exciting time to be able to develop the standards, as you say, um, so that teachers are, our teacher colleagues are equipped with the right curriculum, as well as resources and how to have and navigate these conversations in their classroom. And, and uh, our hope is that there's potential in doing these standards followed by model curricula that we give teachers back time to deeply understand the standards and to be able to create those learning experiences in the classrooms for their students in front of them to see themselves in the curriculum, but also um, to create that, that community, that culture in the classroom to, be, to feel safe to have these types of conversations. And I think the right standards in the hands of the teachers will help them to be able to do that. Uh, to give our listeners more information for those who have not been following this, this is going to be the first year high schools will be teaching the new Black and Latino Studies Social Studies course. I know some schools piloted it last year. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about um, you know, what students will be learning and, as you mentioned, uh, partnering uh, to make sure that people are clear on the standards and, and why this needs to be uh, studied and discussed in this way. Sure, yes, another exciting experience. And we learned a lot from this past year, as you said, from the districts that were piloting the course. Um, we, we've learned of the celebrations, for sure, as well as the challenges. And so having the teacher voice with us to help inform what needed to be renewed to go forward in the curriculum was incredibly helpful for us. So again, that we get the right type of curriculum in their hands. But we really want, the intent of the course is to give students that opportunity to not only explore the accomplishments of those important people and figures in, in that time period of history, as well as what their struggles were, um, even the intersections of these experiences. Um, and it, it really is about those historical movements. And so again, such a model curricula as this one that was developed in partnership with CERC is a valuable asset for the classroom. And so that some of the things that they'll be learning certainly is about U.S. history and modern world history, as well as, um, like I said, the struggles, accomplishments, perspectives of African-American, Black, and Latino and Puerto Rican um, people in the U.S. And so the students have a chance to actually examine these moments, these historical moments, and like I said before, really see themselves. And and that's what we heard from students um, in our showcase last year, at the end of the year. They said, finally, I can be myself and I feel like that um, I can contribute in the classroom in these types of conversations. Again, you're hearing Irene Parisi, Chief Academic Officer for the Connecticut State Department of Education. Again, she's in charge of all the curriculum. Irene, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Commissioner, Thank anything you. you wanted to add about uh, this new curriculum and what Irene shared? Uh, yeah, it is important that we're having these conversations. 
And I know a part of this is also Connecticut's history. And so think about the power of being able to understand uh, the, the history of the, the state in which you live, and in some places, the communities in which you live. And so it is making uh, this learning really hands-on and experiential for students. Mm -hmm. It's important to learn history, but as you know, we live in a time where people are pushing back on what history should be taught. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about that, uh, you know, the the situation that uh, local educators find themselves in uh, because um, it has gotten politicized. And, you know, nothing is more powerful than having these conversations and, and having productive discourse. Really, it's, it's really what it is. That is really, really what education is also about. Uh, and so to be able to come together and understand differences, appreciate differences, uh, truly important. And I always say, let's sit and have conversations together so we can find common ground. It's not to shut down discourse, but to have those conversations in a real and authentic way. Again, you're hearing the Education Commissioner Charlene Russell Tucker here on the show. You can join us if you have a question related to public school education, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. That includes students who may be listening if you have a question about uh, the, the school that you attend and some uh, changes or questions about uh, process and classes as well. Again, that number 888-720-WMPR. You know, I wanted to talk about uh, mental health uh, because uh, Another um, issue that we've talked about on the show is that, you know, children in our country are facing, they're in a mental health crisis. Uh, we know um, from the Surgeon General on down, um, especially uh, the pandemic exacerbating this for, for many. Uh, we know that there is a student-based mental health center that was recently scrapped in Killingly, Connecticut. Uh, that um, that uh, vote by the school board uh, garnering national attention. And we have heard from our education reporter, Catherine Shen, that said this happened despite the legislature spending a lot of time this last session discussing the importance of supporting student mental health needs. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, what happened in Killingly and again as commissioner of the State Department of Ed when we think about the importance of having uh, supports for students you know what does this mean for you when you hear that this is happening in a community in our state? So, Lucy, uh, I should, my history uh, in, in the agency is, is addressing issues of social, emotional, and mental health supports for students and staff, even prior to the pandemic. And this was something that was always critically important for me and for the agency. We recognized that students, in order to maximize learning, uh, had to feel safe. Uh, they had to be mentally well, and our support our teachers also needed to be. So the, the concept of social, emotional, and mental health is one that we've always been addressing. And so, uh, you know, I've even gone as far as saying I have a big audacious goal, uh, and that's one around making sure all our schools have the requisite support necessary to address uh, behavioral health for student and staff. And so we've been working on that. The issue in, in Killingly, for our listeners, it's one, there's still an ongoing investigation. Uh, a complaint was filed with the state, with the State Board of Education, uh, about the, the interests of, of the state. And that investigation is ongoing, and we're still working with the districts in this, in this particular case. The concept, though, of making sure students have the supports to the point you make is one that we will continue to work on uh, and hopefully we'll be able to, to have a resolution here in Killingly for our students, all the students in the state really truly need that level of support uh, so that they can thrive. Mm -hmm. When we talk about mental health supports, are schools a good place, a good space for this mental health center? 
Uh, it's a good space uh, for, for that to occur. That is not the only thing that can happen, right? And so we have districts uh, that are, instead of doing a center, they're making sure they have additional staff. You have social workers, you have psychologists, you have nurses, uh, other support staff in order to, to take care of uh, the situations as they arrive. The, uh, the pub, uh, legislation this past uh, session, legislators, they, with all the mental health discussions, $28 million uh, allocated. Uh, we're getting ready to work on that grant to get out to districts so they can use that to hire additional mental health staff in schools. So there are different ways that they can address these issues, whether by putting a center in the school or working with providers. Uh, in some cases, uh, mental health providers in the community are working hand-in-hand -hand with the, their districts in order to, to support students. So there are many paths uh, in order to do this, but we really believe it's very important to do. Mm. I know you said the investigation in Killingly is ongoing. Uh, you know, some of the local board members wondered if a mental health center would infringe on parental rights. Would it? You know, it, it varies in terms of what is required in the center. Do you need parental uh, um, permission uh, to have conversations? All of those, I think, to be worked out at the local level uh, because parents have a, a very critical role to be a part of all those conversations as they're, have, as they're occurring, and the communities need to be having this conversation. The adults, however, need to be sure that our conversations are student-centered and that we have to think about what's the best for supporting our students. So when they are asking for help, we need to listen. We need to listen. Again, uh, Charlene Russell-Tucker is the State Department of Education Commissioner. You can join us with a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So um, as listeners are aware, you've just mentioned it, there's additional money to help uh, hire social workers and other mental health supports in schools. But right now, when we look at the public schools statewide, maybe even looking at urban districts, are there gaps right now where they don't have enough social workers uh, to help students? Uh, there are. Uh, and, you know, it's, there's also an issue there for uh, shortages. So that's something we also have to think about. Uh, but one of the things I can say, with the $1.7 billion uh, in COVID education relief funds that came into the state, we, uh, as the State Department of Education, established five priorities for those investments. One of them was social, emotional, mental health supports. And I'm really pleased to say that over $183 million has been budgeted for investment across all our districts uh, in Connecticut to, to support that particular uh, initiative uh, priority. So the issue is We've got additional state funds, we've got federal funds uh, in order to do that. And I, I believe that you'll see more and more occurring in our districts mm -hmm. because it is really such a very important issue. It is foundational to student success. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to address those issues. You mentioned federal support. We know, you know how much money came into the state of Connecticut alone, uh, COVID dollars uh, to help uh, with uh, you know, different aspects. And I'm just wondering when we think about mental health supports, if any of this COVID money is being used to support uh, the hiring of staff, is it sustainable down the road? That's a great question. You know, we think about folks are concerned about the funding cliff. Uh, and what's going to happen when those dollars go away. And if you invest heavily in staffing, there is certainly an issue of concern uh, when the, the dollars go away. There are more dollars being also put into this area federally. Uh, so I am hopeful that as we go forward and by we, the time we get to the end of those dollars, 
I like to call it a parachute for a safer landing. Uh, but we need to know how things work and to make sure that they're effective, which we're also talking about. So we can go back to our, our legislators, or we can go back to our federal delegation and say, look, these things work. We need to continue. We need to maintain. We need to sustain the funding. Before we head to a break, uh, Roxine, uh, Roxanne tweeted, is there any possibility the legislature will take up the issue again of awarding teachers one year for every year they taught during COVID that would go towards their retirement? What can you tell us? Uh, so uh, the conversation, I think, is one that continues to go forward with, their legislative, with your legislators, and folks should continue to have those conversations uh, with them. Uh, we recognize the importance and will continue to work with our legislative legislators on this particular issue as well. So I don't have the crystal ball uh, for what's going to happen in the upcoming session, uh, but having the conversations with our delegation, I think, is really important. Again, our number, 888-720-9677, to ask a question of State Education Commissioner Charlene Russell-Tucker. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the upcoming school year for Connecticut Public Schools with my guest, Commissioner Charlene Russell Tucker. You can join us, 888 720 9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, I wanted to mention some stats. Uh, this Students of color comprise a little more than half of the population at public schools in our state. I believe last school year marked the first time that this number was over 50%. Meanwhile, nearly 9 out of 10 Connecticut teachers are white. Only 10% of Connecticut teachers are educators of color. That is, Those are numbers from your department. And so I want you to talk about that and about you know, efforts to um, you know, diversify uh, the, the teacher workforce to better represent the students in the classroom. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier about some of the initiatives uh, that we put in place. That's also a recruitment uh, initiative around uh, diversifying our educator workforce. And we've worked very hard, including listening to, looking to see other states to see if they're making progress and what they're doing to, to do that. And some of the grow your own and, and really reaching out to or even, even middle school students to talk about uh, their interest in education is a part of that. We have an initiative uh, with young men of color uh, that we're working on uh, to make sure that we, we also entice uh, our young men of color into the profession. And so it's, it's looking internal inside our state. It's also looking outside our state. And another way of, of, of doing some of this as I mentioned before, is reaching to uh, paraeducators or those who are just interested in doing other work in, in schools uh, to get their interest into the profession as well. And so we're working on many efforts, uh, you know, growing your own internally here in Connecticut, uh, but to really attract folks into the, into the profession. It's really important that our students are able to see themselves uh, in their educators as well. I wanted to uh, paraphrase uh, related to a conversation that we had earlier. Uh, Dortha uh, wanted to share that there hasn't been too much talk about retired teachers. Uh, she taught for 23 years. And is there a place for retired teachers to contribute to the state, Commissioner? Uh, no, great question. I think last year, towards the end of last year, that 
uh, they, we had a, an executive order uh, that allowed uh, retired teacher to come back uh, into the workforce, and we will continue to look at that as another strategy as well, uh, because uh, I know some of them really would like to come back in and, and help out uh, during this time. When we talk about representation in the classroom being important, you know, this does relate back to the mandate-driven curricula that we talked about earlier in the show. So talk about the role of professional development here. Really important, uh, and it is uh, to make sure that all our school staff have the professional learning uh, that allows them uh, to just get deeper understanding, uh, deeper knowledge, uh, and, and, and that and the role in which they play and to bring, sometimes we bring, you know, outsiders in uh, to talk to them about it. And, you know, I'll go back to our back to school uh, meeting that happened last week. And our theme for the year is the sky is not the limit. Uh, and we have our guest speaker for that event is Dr. Bernard, Bernard Harris, uh, a NASA, former NASA astronaut, right, who best to talk about the sky being not the limit. But he t- also talked about his background and experience and how he was able to achieve such high levels, even though family situations might not have been ideal. And we wanted our educators to hear that story uh, as we talk about not putting limits on our students. So it's really important. I always think about it. If you can see him or, or her, you can be him or her, right? And so hearing from others, their experiences, shared experiences, uh, lived experiences, I think is really important for all our school staff across the state, including us as well, to continue uh, our learning. Yeah, it's important to get that message. And before we run out of time, I wanted to talk about student achievement because we know, especially when uh, remote education uh, was done um, early on in the pandemic, uh, there's been the term, the so-called learning loss. I know some educators don't like that. uh, But when we think about learning recovery, how is your department tracking student achievement and where uh, there needs to be more work to help them? Uh, So, you know, in a few days, we will be releasing uh, our assessment uh, data for this year. We assessed our students back in 2020, uh, and we were able to learn the the impact uh, of the pandemic and how important in-person learning was, right? That was a really big part of it, and we'll continue to learn more. We also will be unveiling our recovery dashboard uh, that will help everyone transparently, and I hope for those uh, listening, that they're able to go on our EdSite data portal. Uh, We have one of the best uh, data uh, portals uh, in the state of Connecticut. There's nothing hidden, full transparency, because it needs all of us to understand what our students need at this point in time uh, for learning acceleration, uh, to your point. We're talking about how do we really make up uh, for what our students uh, have lost, uh, to move forward, and it's going to take all of us. It's the, the school, the family, the community working together. And so uh, stay tuned for that information. But the data are there mm-hmm. that we're able to see how, our, how the district is doing, how our schools are doing. You can compare. You can disaggregate data by our different uh, student group populations. Really great information for us to continue to have this mm-hmm. dialogue about. So that assessment will be public, as you mentioned, uh, soon. Uh, but I'm sure you're privy to that data, as you mentioned. So So what concerns you about the last two and a half years, uh, something that you want to see improvement? 
uh, it really, really, when we think about it, we see the lag, you know, of our, of our different student groups, our students with disabilities, uh, our students experiencing homelessness, and we've got to really think about how we reach out uh, and support them. Uh, we've got incredible educators in our state. They have done a lot the, the past, you know, two and a half years. Uh, they've been on the front lines, and so we want to make sure that they're supported, that they can be their very best in the classroom, because if they're at their best, then we have great confidence that the sky is truly not the limit for our students uh, moving forward. It's, it's too bad that we ran out of time, but there is a question that I'm going to drop on you. <laughs> and there's Uh-oh. not a lot of time but to, to, to answer it. But when we think about the latest chef agreement, uh, the importance of making sure that uh, kids in Hartford can attend a magnet, a school, um, the state uh, has committed to spending the money to make that happen. But part of making sure that our schools are desegregated statewide is to make sure that suburban schools sign up and participate in open choice. Where does that stand and what, where, what are your concerns there? You know, so we continue to have these conversations with our districts in this particular, uh, in this uh, issue, uh, and, you know, continue to, to talk about the, the benefits, really, of having our students across the system. And everyone benefits, right, from diversity. Everyone benefits from diverse student body. Everyone benefits from div- diverse staffing uh, in our schools and continue to do that. I want families to make sure when they make a decision about a particular theme, uh, that they wanted their students to participate in, uh, that they're able to do that, and that our schools are embracing and supporting of all of them wherever they're being educated. Mm-hmm. There's benefits, but some schools just don't want uh, children from other communities. Uh, Darien voting to not have kids from Norwalk come to their school. Uh, you know, when you see that happening in your state, when you're responsible for public school education, what more can be done? We need to have deeper conversations, really, around um, what the, those concerns may be. And really, it's, we need to, be, to just be frank and honest to what are the concerns uh, that you have and why. And those are the deeper conversations that I know we need to have, uh, and to have those at community levels, to have those at school district levels, and to have those even at the family level, right, that we're talking about this. And so, they, you know, it's challenging. But I still go back to the fact that together, uh, I believe that we should have all those conversations uh, because that's how we move forward. Our 500,000 plus students in the state of Connecticut, they demand and require all of us as the adults supporting them to be having these conversations so that they can uh, be their best. Again, Charlene Russell Tucker is the State Education Commissioner. What a pleasure to hear from you. Welcome to to come on anytime. We hope you come back soon. Thank you. And I look forward to having more conversations so that, again, the sky is not the limit for what we can achieve this upcoming year. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Tess Terrible was on the phones today. Special thanks to the visuals and content and operations team uh, for today's show. We'll be back tomorrow.